Welcome to The Important Part, Investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, Head of Investment Strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to the important part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. Welcome back to The Important Part. This is part three of our three-part series focusing on the retail investor. And this one is with Shannon Sakosha. We are going to talk about now how do we put the couple pieces that we already discussed into execution? How do we build a portfolio? What matters in building a portfolio? Because it can be really overwhelming at the beginning if you're if you're starting with money and you don't know where to put any of it. So we're going to hash through that with Shannon. Shannon Sakosha is the Chief Investment Officer of NB Private Wealth, a division of Newberger Berman. In her role, Ms. Sakosha works closely with investment leadership across Newberger Berman to establish market views, asset allocation, and portfolio recommendations tailored specifically for NB Private Wealth clients. She is also responsible for leading the NB Private Wealth investment platform to enable comprehensive delivery of the firm's investment capabilities. Let's get to the interview. Okay, so you are part three of a three-part series on retail investing. We have so far covered the rise of the retail investor, things like meme stocks with Gunjan Banerjee. We talked about investor psychology and the resources that retail investors can use with Ben Carlson. You are here to help us execute, which is a critically important part. And honestly, I think the part about investing that most retail investors and individuals need help on. It's very overwhelming. How do we allocate a portfolio? So we're going to cover a bunch of different things on that front. And I'll ask you that question of, if you were given $50,000 today, how would you invest it? But I want to back up and make sure that the audience learns a little bit about you. And you know, I know a lot about you. I love working with you. I, I think you're an absolute powerhouse in the industry. But I want the audience to understand more about you and your career. So you've spent a large portion of your career working with private wealth clients, which usually is higher net worth clients. But in any event, these are individuals that are investing their their money. What are some of the most important things that you tell clients about investing, no matter where they are in their journey, no matter their level of wealth? It's a great question, Liz. And it's one that I've thought a lot about over the course of my career, really starting off as sort of a, a true investment professional, if you will, coming into the high net worth RAA industry back in 2006 and really doing everything from bond and equity trading to equity analysis, portfolio management, asset allocation, portfolio construction. And what I learned over the course of that period is that for most individuals and families, when they're thinking about investing their wealth, there has been a perhaps a historical precedent that you have to look at what is a that number or that return that you need to accomplish in order to meet your goals. And I think one of the things that I always tell investors is that it's really about you know, what's most important to you. And so that can't always be and, and almost honestly never can be described in just a number. It's what does this wealth mean to you? What are your longer term goals? And then how do we understand those goals and your circumstances, your background, how the wealth was derived in order to align our solution to be able to meet that goal for you? I think 
One of the things that becomes somewhat dissatisfying for investors, particularly high net worth investors, is this misalignment between what they think their portfolio should be doing and, and what it might be doing based on an, an investment allocation or, or how the, uh, the exposures are lined up. And so really getting down to the fact that you need to understand what is it that you would like out of your wealth and what is this wealth doing for you in order to guide your advisor or even yourself if you're a do-it-yourself investor, in order to guide that portfolio solution, you actually have to start out with the, well, what do I want this to do rather than the how, which I think is where a lot of investors start. Right. And, and we'll t- you made a good point there. We'll talk about this in a little bit, that it's the interactions between all the different investments that are in a portfolio. You can choose a certain stock or you can choose an ETF and say, I feel really good about putting my money in that, but then forget to really think about how is that going to play with the other seven things that I have in the portfolio? And is it actually going to cancel out the opportunity that I thought it had? So we'll get to that in a little bit. But the million-dollar question, not really the million-dollar question, the $50,000 question today is, if you were given fifty grand today and you had to start investing it, let's assume you had at least a 15 to 20-year investment horizon, what do you do first? So I'm not asking you to tell me, oh, I'd put 10% here, 20% there. What do you think about first? Do you start by thinking about the vehicle, meaning are you deciding on, do I want ETFs, mutual funds, individual stocks, or do you start with asset classes or do you start somewhere else entirely? So I actually think you start somewhere else entirely. I think you start with, you know, what what is it about me in terms of my experience, my experience with wealth, my experience in investing, um, for me to understand, you know, what I'm most comfortable with in terms of outcomes. And so a wide range of outcomes or a more narrow range of outcomes, am I comfortable with um, asymmetry in terms of the returns that I'm I'm able to generate? Or am I really looking for capital preservation? Do I need income? Those are the questions that you really need to ask first and foremost, because that guides that high-level asset allocation, which is, uh, as you know, Liz, it, it's responsible for, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 90% of longer term returns is how you're allocating those assets. And so it's difficult, however, to determine the right asset allocation, unless you've asked yourself those questions about time horizon, risk tolerance. Um, and so being able to answer those questions, being introspective, put those down on a piece of paper, and then tailoring the portfolio from an asset class perspective based on that that's really the critical first piece. There's a lot of guidance out there that's available to investors in terms of if you're looking to uh, generate this return at this level of risk, this is the type of portfolio that you should be in. And so then being able to align that with your individual circumstances and pre-existing conditions, that's the most important piece. The implementation, uh, and we can go into this in a little bit more detail that makes sense. The implementation can... Uh, potentially create, uh, you know, outsized return over and above what that asset allocation is, but it tends to be less impactful on a longer term basis. And so the implementation, we have so many tools in the toolkit in, in this time period and so many more. Um, and I know Ben talked about this in the, in, in the last, uh, episode. We have so many more things that we have at our disposal that it's, it can be somewhat overwhelming. And so, Starting with that asset allocation, understanding who you are as an investor and what are the things that are going to create a more 
uh, likely outcome of you sticking with the plan, that comes first, then the asset allocation, and then the implementation. Okay, that I mean that makes a lot of sense, and it, I think one of the things that investors get stuck on is, it, I mean, it's really easy to get overwhelmed when you have to, you think you have to answer eleven thousand questions at once, right? So start at the very beginning. What is my objective with this money? And obviously, we have to think about risk tolerance. I think about portfolio construction, or when you're if you're starting just from the beginning of how do we create an allocation? It's really a three pronged approach. You've got part of the portfolio that's there for preservation, part of the portfolio that might be there for income, depending on your situation, and probably a big portion of the portfolio there for growth, particularly if you're a younger individual investor, you want to have a decent portion of it there to produce growth. And then once you have those objectives lined up for yourself and how much you're willing to do, how much risk you're willing to take, it's a lot easier to move on to the next few decisions. So I talked about, you know, we don't have to go through the prescription of this. There's no prescription for everybody about percentages. But one of the questions that I think is really important for investors to think through is that we get warned all the time about don't take too concentrated of bets. Don't have too much concentration in your portfolio. Don't overly allocate to tech stocks. Don't overly allocate to one name. Don't overly allocate to your employer's stock because you're already allocated to your employer as, as by way of just working for them. What is your take on concentrated bets? And I, I ask that because, I'm going to lead the witness a little bit here, but I ask that because I think there is a risk of getting over-diversified. You can have too much in the portfolio where none of it's really doing what you want it to because there's so much going on. So how do you balance between diversification and concentration? Because concentration a lot of times can offer more opportunity. Well, I think that's the the number one question is, what do I actually own? And so I think when you look at a portfolio and, and you and I are both in the situation where over the course of our careers, we've had an opportunity to see a lot of portfolios uh, that have been built uh, by different types of institutions, organizations, investors themselves, uh, you know, the number of vehicles in the portfolio is not indicative of diversification. And so you can become easily over-diversified if you're adding a number of different vehicles that are designed to provide you with broader market exposure. So think about the you know, the rise of passive, the rise of, of passive investing was really to allow investors to not only access, you know, a broader scope of investments in a, you know, easier, often more cost efficient, more tax efficient way. It also was designed to be one of just a few instruments or strategies in a portfolio. And what you've seen is that you've seen that taken to the nth degree in terms of adding different index exposures, a lot of which, like if you look at the S&P 500 and the Russell 1000 growth, think about the amount of overlap between those two indices adding those to both to your portfolio is probably overly diversifying. Now, on the flip side, if you're taking concentrated risk, uh, and you talked about it, I think there's there's opportunities to take concentrated risk in areas where you have high conviction or where there's like a meaningful rationale that you can not only convince yourself on 
you know, buying that particular concentrated risk or taking on that concentrated risk, but understanding that you actually have to pay more attention to that than you do a broader diversified portfolio. And so accepting the fact that that's going to be the part of your portfolio that potentially keeps you up at night and couldn't agree more, obviously, from my experience, that you don't want to be over concentrated in, you know, employer stock, for instance, because there's just too, too much tied up in that from a lifestyle perspective, that you're already taking on that risk as an employee. So I think it's thinking about, okay, what is the what are the concentrations that I feel are my highest conviction concentrations? And that may be, you know, you take that concentration with an active manager, for instance. Typically they have less holdings in their portfolio and they have a fundamental or technical or quantitative rationale for holding those names in the portfolio, you can give that concentration risk over to those managers, but understanding that you still have to look at the overlap, that intersection across all of these strategies to ensure that you aren't having those outsized un, um, unknown bets. Like It's really about knowing what factors you're exposed to, what concentration you're exposed to, and then understanding what the implications of that are on a day-to-day basis. I think you just made two really, really important points that I want to repeat. First of all, the number of vehicles or the number of investments in your portfolio really does not indicate that you're diversified. You could have 15 stocks that are in the exact same industry group and you're actually over-concentrated. So there's this fallacy of diversification just because you've got a bunch of different line items. So that's super important, I think, for investors to remember. The second point that I think you made that was really, really important is that If you're going to make a concentrated bet, I'm going to change your words a little bit and paraphrase, but if you're going to make a concentrated bet, you're also committing to paying more attention to that bet. So if you're going to put it on in your portfolio, that's perfectly fine. If you feel good about that, you have high conviction in that idea or that bet, you also have to commit to watching it more closely, giving it time to make sure that it's doing what you thought it would, and trying to remove the emotion from it of saying, okay, you know what, this isn't going the way I thought it was going to, and now it's exposing me too much and I need to get out. But you have to commit the time to that. And then lastly, um, I'll just give an example. I used to cover, I used to be what's called a due diligence analyst. I know that sounds absolutely thrilling to everybody listening, but I used to cover active managers And there are different thresholds for what we would consider a concentrated portfolio. So let's say it was a small cap money manager and they were running a mutual fund of small cap stocks. Concentrated meant that they had about 25 to 30 names in the portfolio. So even in that case, concentrated is still over 20 names. And then a very diversified portfolio, I covered a small cap manager that was creeping up on 500 to 1,000 names in the portfolio. And that's almost overly diversified because you start to act a lot like the index. So somewhere in between there is not concentrated nor over-diversified, but that's a, a big range of outcomes. Okay, so uh, I, wanna, I wanna ask a little more directly, if you're thinking about putting money to work, and oftentimes I think about it as a hub and spoke approach. You wanna have a core of the portfolio that's always there where you're sort of exposed to beta of the market. Would you use an ETF or a mutual fund? And let's let's assume you're doing this for an individual investor, uh, somebody who's a little bit more of the SoFi investor who's maybe just starting out in their journey, not yet a high net worth client, hoping to be one someday, but not yet quite there. Do you use an ETF or a mutual fund or do you pick stocks on your own? So 
I think if you're starting out on your own, you're really looking and, and there's an implication there that you're probably, um, not close to retirement, right? So, so you have the, time frame of 10 plus years to be able to compound this growth over time. And what you want to make sure is that you're thinking about things like slippage um, in terms of costs and, and tax efficiency. Uh, and you also, you know, frankly, you, you do want to be exposed to beta and the cheapest way, the easiest way to be exposed to beta is ETFs. And so taking the core of your portfolio to use your term and knowing that, yes, I'm going to want some exposure to U.S. stocks. I'm going to want some exposure to, to ex-U.S. stocks. Um, I, I may want some exposure to other areas like real estate. You know, that first foray as a, a an investor, probably the easiest and most streamlined way to do that is to add ETF exposure uh, in those core. Now, there's something to be said for adding some active management alongside of that. And I think where you want to really focus on active management is in two areas. Number one, um, you know, there are uh, certainly, and from my experience as a due diligence analyst as well, because that's my background, uh, <laughs> there, you know, there are, there, there are certainly, you know, if you're looking at sort of the core tiles of management, um, you know, particularly, in areas that are at least slightly less efficient than the broader market, there are opportunities to add that active exposure. But you want to make sure that you're balancing the risk of that active exposure with, okay, I, you know, from a from a longer term perspective, I really just want to make sure that I'm accessing the market. And I think that's another important point, Liz, is that if you as an investor know that you're going to be looking at the benchmark being the S&P 500 or the the MSCI Acqui or whatever it is that you're benchmarking, quote unquote, your portfolio to, if you know that you're going to be uncomfortable with meaningful deviation from that benchmark, then that sort of points you towards, a, you know, an ETF or passive approach as well. But if you want to add that active exposure as a satellite, you know, you can do that in a few different ways, but I think it's important to understand that if you're going to take that active exposure, particularly when you're first starting out, probably makes more sense to do that in areas where the, um, where there is that inefficiency that can potentially be captured. Now, as you go up the wealth spectrum, there's certainly more opportunities to be adding active exposure. Um, and it's, and it becomes a little bit different as you, um, as your wealth grows. But I think in, in initially, not having to worry about that deviation as much probably creates a better behavioral response and more likelihood of you being able to remain invested. Yeah, the, such such sage advice. So one of the things I, I want to cover for people, because a lot of investors, especially if you're a newer retail investor, probably got into this picking individual stocks. And and I'm not asking you to, to give any names in particular, but I think that there is... Uh, maybe a lack of analysis that goes on, a lack of fundamental analysis that goes on occasionally with individual stocks because we're conditioned so much to look at stocks as what I consider the fallacy of familiarity. So I'm familiar with Apple because I use a bunch of their devices. Therefore, I feel like Apple should be a good stock to own because I'm going to keep using their stuff and so does everybody that I know. So it must be a good company. That may be true, but there's a lot more to look at and there's a lot more that you think that you have to think about under the surface of a stock. So what would you consider if somebody's out there trying to decide on individual stocks to own, what are some of the absolute non-negotiable things that an individual should know about a company before they buy the stock? 
So coming from NB Private Wealth and thinking about it from, uh, you know, our role as a, you know, asset manager, active investor, uh, I can assure you that there are a lot of different variables that are utilized in the assessment of names that go into a portfolio from an individual stock perspective. But I think the fallacy of familiarity, which I love, I'm definitely stealing that, uh, <laughs> you know, this goes back to, you know, Peter Lynch, right? You, you buy what you know. And I think the problem is, is that, you know, there's a big difference between a product or a service that you're purchasing and how that that stock necessarily will, uh, will perform. And so there's a few things. And I just go back to sort of, you know, Porter's five forces, right? Understanding the competitive landscape for a company that you're, that you're buying. Um, just because you read a newspaper doesn't mean other people are reading newspapers, right? So what is the, the secular environment that that company is operating in? Um, thinking about corporate management, uh, you know, we talk a lot about, um, ESG and it ebbs and flows in terms of importance, but governance and management, um, those can really become distractions for companies, you know, and they, they often are, uh, expressed in terms of investor sentiment. And the last thing is, is, is really understanding, you know, what is that cushion? What is that margin of safety? And so if you think about things like, do they have cash on the balance sheet? Do they have cash flow that they're, able to utilize so that they don't have to go back to the capital markets. And then just looking at leverage. And I know for individual investors, that might be hard to do. But if you read up, you know, even in the first 10 minutes of looking at a company, if they have a lot of leverage and they don't have a lot of cash flow and they don't have a strong balance sheet and they have management that has been in the news, because generally when management's in the news, that's not a positive. Um, those are some things. But really coming back to that first point, are they in a business that is in secular decline? Or are there forces that could continue to help that business grow, even in the midst of, you know, sort of difficult economic environments? And I think I think it's important for investors also to remember, you can do a decent amount of research, a lot, in fact, a lot of research without having the tools that somebody like Shannon or myself might have at our disposal. I realize not everybody is sitting in front of a Bloomberg terminal on a daily basis, but there's a lot of info out there. And it can seem really intimidating for an individual investor who has no accounting background, no corporate finance background to open up a 10K and start reading it. And I, I realize that most people are probably not going to do that but you can still find a lot of information. And I would say just one simple rule, if you're looking at buying a company and you're trying to figure out you know, what businesses they operate in, how their business runs, what kinds of products there are, what their competitive environment is, if you don't get it, don't buy it. Because you're not gonna be able to set the right expectations for how that's supposed to behave. And, and I don't mean that from the perspective of you have to be absolutely down into the weeds and know exactly what their shareholder equity looks like. You don't, don't have to have their balance sheet memorized. But if you don't understand the business they're in and how their company operates, generally speaking, and you don't understand the competitive landscape, stay away from it until you understand it better. Can I add something there, Liz? I, yes, I think the other thing is, is that if you're selecting individual stocks, whatever it is that you key on as the rationale for why you're buying that stock, right? We know there's that, you know, we there's quantitative managers out there, there's managers that rely on technicals, there's deep fundamental, you know, asset managers. In your own portfolio as an individual, you know, 
articulate the rationale for why you're buying that name, because it actually will help you in making the decision about, you know, potentially selling it down the line. And so I think even individual investors just say, you know, I, I'm buying Apple to use your earlier example, because I think they're going to grow in China. And, you know, then that would give you rationale right now in terms of, you know, okay, are they still growing in China? And does that make sense for me to hold that? So even if it's not, you know, a four page document on why you're buying a particular name, you should anchor yourself to some rationale so that Mm -hmm. it makes it easier for you to understand if that's working out or not. And that helps that process in terms of buying and selling that makes it a lot easier rather than just relying purely on price, which, as you and I both know, isn't always the best way to determine when you what, when you should be buying and selling a particular name. Oh, my gosh. Usually the worst way to determine <laughs> you should be buying or selling. You said that, not me. <laughs> yeah, Totally. So I do this. Don't be afraid to write down. And and I try to keep it as simple as possible. Don't be afraid to write down why you bought something just so that you can go back and reference it later. So for example, let's say I went out and I bought an industrials ETF today. In one line, one bullet point, I'll take a note of why did I buy that today? right? I bought that because I think XYZ is going to happen in the next three to six months. I bought it because I think the valuation looks compelling, whatever it is. Because then you can go back, if it's performing poorly, you can go back and say, is that particular reason still intact? And if it is, then maybe you don't sell it. Maybe you wait out the poor performance for a little while. If that particular reason has, if the thesis is busted on that reason, then maybe it's time to part ways. So just remind yourself why you bought it in the first place. And I think that's also really important. So, okay, we referenced this before, the interactions among investments. The fancy way that people like you and I talk about this is correlation, right? Or uh, covariance. We're not going to get into the statistics and what all that means because it doesn't matter to these listeners and, and nobody wants to do that kind of math. But let's talk about the interactions and how you have to think about that in a portfolio. And we could just keep it as simple as saying, you know, not everything is supposed to work at the same time. So if you've got some positions in the portfolio that are supposed to be serving the purpose of preservation and the market's going up, those are probably going to drag and that's okay. But how do you think about the interactions as you're building a portfolio out? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to, there's there's sort of two points to that. Number one, and you made a, a great point just there, like what is it in the portfolio for? And we always talk about, oh, diversification, 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 but diversification can be across several factors, right? If you're invested in, you know, small cap growth stocks, for instance, you're not throwing off any income from dividends, but so then you might want to pair that with something like a REIT uh, vehicle that does throw off income, has different drivers, is driven by a different industry environment, for instance. Um, And so thinking about those factors in the portfolio and understanding how they work together in 2022, as we all know, you know, one of the most challenging things about 2022 was that bonds and stocks moved in tandem. And that's, you know, typically not the relationship. If you look at that from a historical perspective, the idea around looking at that interaction is, you know, if you're interested in aligning your portfolio with a certain set of market circumstances, then you are, um, and you're fully doing that, then you're going to get that much wider range of outcomes. And so the way I look at interaction is, and the way I look at diversification is, if we pair different types of investments together, does that narrow 
the range of outcomes, because by narrowing the range of outcomes, you're more likely to get closer to delivering your desired outcome for your portfolio, but you're also more likely to stay invested. And so thinking about what parts of my portfolio, to your point, may not participate, right, if we have a large equity rally, but I can pair that with investments, for instance, that could potentially cushion me in a downside scenario. Um, and I and I hope that, and I think we're seeing that, that I think that 2022 was such an anomaly, just given the velocity of the rate increases that we experienced and their impacts on the capital market. People understand that there is still the opportunity for diversification by having different asset class exposures, but understanding also that there's some factors that underlie that that can also help to, to meet those desired outcomes that are apart from just asset class and more about the intent of adding or subtracting different types of uh, strategies to a portfolio on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Okay. We're getting closer to the end here. One of the things that I think people struggle with, self-included sometimes, is you know you have a brokerage account that you trade in, or maybe you have a retirement account and a brokerage account, but chances are you're going to use the money in that brokerage account for a few different reasons. And you might have a few different objectives for that money. So for example, let's say you've got a chunk of that money that's dedicated for college tuition for a kid who's 16 or 17 and headed to college soon versus a chunk that is dedicated for a retirement slush fund later on in life that you may not need for another 15 to 20 years. How do you delineate, how do you separate between those objectives in a portfolio and invest for each part? I mean, I think the easiest way people might think about doing it as well, just have a different account for every objective, but that's not realistic really. And it gets confusing and and then it's harder to understand the interaction between all of your investments. But the reality is you probably have one account that has multiple objectives for certain parts of the money. So how do you figure out how to separate those from an asset allocation perspective? Yeah, so I think the, you know, the asset allocation that we've grown up with and we think about is, you know, seven asset classes or nine asset classes or that Morningstar style box, right? That's that's what asset allocation means. Um, and I actually think when you talk to individuals and families on an ongoing basis, it actually comes down to the, the purpose for those funds, to your point. And so the, the way that um, the way that we think about it is, OK, what is the it's, it falls into three buckets. And you uh, articulated this a little bit earlier, but I'm going to put a finer point on it the way that we think about it. So it starts with liquidity. So you talked about, you know, that that child going to college in the next couple of years or perhaps having to um, think about putting, uh, you know, an aging parent into to, you know, assisted living. That's money that you need to have earmarked from a liquidity perspective. And, you know, the benefit is in this current interest rate environment, that's probably earning a little bit more than it was for the last uh, 15 years or so. But I think but I think that still that shouldn't really be the driver for that money. It should be safety, security and not so much return enhancement. The middle bucket, which is where I think most people sit, the majority of their portfolio is that growth bucket. And so it's not to say that 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 part of your portfolio doesn't require as much maintenance. But I think what you need to think about that is in terms of a time horizon that probably is more like a 10-year time horizon than a two-year time horizon. And that's where you get your diversification to public markets. That's where you can add those different asset classes. You still want that growth bucket to be primarily liquid because you want to make sure that you have access to that. We all have things that occur in our lives that change. But 
by having the liquidity cushion, it means that you have some optionality about when you sell out of that growth bucket to fund potential changes in your lifestyle. And then the last bucket, and this is really where I think, you know, alternatives come in or things that you're doing on a personal, from a personal perspective, whether it's, you know, investing in a, in a family business or with a friend or, um, is this aspirational bucket. And so, until you have those liquidity and growth buckets, you know, whether and your growth bucket is probably something like retirement, um, sort of uh, earmarked, I think that's when you can start to look at alternatives. It, they're less liquid. They have a much longer term time horizon. Uh, those the the managers of those investments really look to have that keep that optionality with them in terms of when they can monetize or, or create liquidity in those strategies. And so that's where you get that potential opportunity for higher returns or more differentiated sources of return. But that's not, you You can't really size that until you figured out those other two buckets. And so really just thinking about what is the, what are the needs for this, these pools of capital? What are the desired goals for these pools of capital? And then I agree with you, putting them in a lot of different accounts, you start to create a lot of complexity for you in understanding how close or far you are from meeting your desired outcome. And so I think that that's where you want to be very careful to articulate this in this sort of, you know, what is the intent for this money going back to our very first um, part of the conversation? What do I want from this, from this, from these funds, from this part of the portfolio and making sure that it's invested appropriately to deliver that? Yeah. Okay, last question in this section, then we're going to do what's called the hot minute where I give you lightning round questions. But this last question, we've talked a lot about so far long-term investing. We've we've basically framed this as you have at least a 15 to 20 year investment horizon. There's also momentum investing out there that you can use. And that doesn't necessarily have to only be if you're a day trader. It's really an approach that you can look at and it's a way that you can choose to buy or sell securities based on what their trend has been over the recent past and what you expect the trend to continue to be. And momentum is a really powerful force, especially because we know that markets are driven a lot by sentiment. And there's a lot of piling in and there's a lot of running out that happens just because it's it's been sort of moving in that direction. What's your take on when momentum investing is useful and when people should stay away from it? Are there different types of investors who should do it or should not do it? Um, do you think it's too risky? Do you think it offers opportunity? can take that any way you'd like to. In terms of momentum investing, I think that what you what's really required, Liz, is discipline. And I think that if you have a disciplined approach in terms of momentum investing, again, going back to my comment earlier, uh, the majority of the returns in your portfolio are going to be derived from long-term strategic asset allocation. And so, um, but the reality is for most in individuals and families, there are ins and outs in the portfolio on any given at any given time. And so I think when you're thinking about, well, how do I potentially manage those ins and outs? And how do I want to take advantage of potentially some ta what I would call tactical factors uh, like momentum, you know, just probably putting a limit on how much of the portfolio you're doing for that, similar to what we talked about earlier with a core and satellite approach. How much of my portfolio do I want to devote to momentum? But most importantly, you know, having a very clear strategy 
again, whether you're um, whether you're trading on the momentum factor, you're trading on other technical factors, or whether you're trading on uh, the movement of earnings, whatever it is, having that discipline. I think the other thing to think about is taxes, right? And so, uh, you know, anytime you're making any sort of tactical trading, if you want to make sure that you're thinking about, okay, what are the costs to me? What are the taxes? What are the tax implications? What's the slippage, if you will? Am I doing enough of these trades or doing them at enough at high enough frequency that I'm getting the desired effect or benefit from it. I think that's an important piece. But for most individual investors, I don't know that they can devote the time to create that disciplined approach. And I think that that's a challenge because if you don't know, if you're not very disciplined about when to go in and out and you're not following the momentum trend, it, you know, you're you're certainly not able to take advantage of that, and you're probably not garnering the benefits from the you know potentially higher taxes and higher fees. Okay, we have entered the hot minute portion of the program. This will this will wrap it up. This is like the lightning round. I'm going to ask you three quick questions. You can give one word answers. You can give six word answers, but we'll keep it quick. So, first question is: What is your favorite defensive play? Healthcare. Uh, I think that, you know, at longer term, demographic tailwind is seen as a defensive. A lot of healthcare companies produce strong cash flow and dividends, but there is some growth underlying that industry as well. And so that's, that's my favorite defensive play. Um, and certainly out of favor here in 2023. Mm -hmm. I love that one. Second question. Will big tech be the winner in the next market phase? Tough to answer. So I think the, my nuanced response is, is that big tech has several factors, which I think create uh, opportunities for investors. They tend to create a lot of free cash flow. They have strong balance sheets. They do have a secular tailwind. The challenge with tech is that from an investment perspective, they make up such a big part of the market now that it's hard to see the ability to take advantage of that and derive the same types of returns that we have in the last couple of years, just because we, you know, they're such a big part of the index um, and, and frankly, the investable universe. But I think if you look at the qualities from a fundamental perspective for big tech, then they certainly, you know, should continue to do well. But I don't know that they will lead this next phase, whether it's, you know, the next three months or the next 12 months, that short term time horizon. I think we've just maybe seen a little bit too much in terms of the appreciation in those names. And I think there might be other leaders as we move into 2024. Totally agree. Last question. What's one investing mistake that you wish you could have a redo on? Uh, selling travel-related names in late March, early April of 2020. I think if you go back to 2019, there was an anticipation that the continued trend from good spending to services spending was going to continue. You know, having exposure to travel stocks, any sort of travel-related names um, was very challenging in March and April. And I think that Unlike other situations where we have geopolitical conflict or other events, if you will, that typically a lot of institutional investors wouldn't trade on, you know, we just sort of know that things would revert back to the mean and that there would be resolution and that we wouldn't see longer term impacts. I think the um, the unknown of what was happening from a COVID-19 perspective forced a lot of hands and and that was 
and mine was forced. And I sold a few travel related names that I wish I could have back a couple months after that. Yeah. I, I mean, I've certainly sold a few things I wish I could have back <laughs> over the last few years. Well, thank you very much, Shannon, for doing this. I really appreciate your time today. I know that all of our listeners will appreciate your time as well. And I hope that we can have you back again sometime in the future to talk about executing a portfolio uh, and maybe just with some recaps of what's happened between now and whenever that future date is. So thank you so much. Loved it. Thank you for having me, Liz. This was a lot of fun. Well, I hope that that episode was as helpful for you as it was for me to even hear about how Shannon thinks through building a portfolio and all of the different things that she tells her clients when she's doing that with them and giving them advice through the process. It certainly is a journey. It is a risk and return journey and everybody's is different. So a few key takeaways, three in particular that I wanted to point out from the episode the first one, we've acknowledged a number of times now, it's really overwhelming. It can be really overwhelming because of all the resources that are available, all of the possibilities of what could happen in a portfolio and the amount of advice and the conflicting advice. It can get very confusing. So Shannon said, start instead with your own experience and what you would be comfortable with based on that experience in order to narrow the outcomes for what could happen with your money because the outcomes are so broad when you begin. So start with your own experience level, learn as you go, just to understand where you would be comfortable along that realm. Second key takeaway, when you're buying a stock, and this would go for any investment, but I think a single stock in particular, when you're buying a single stock, know the rationale for why you bought it and anchor yourself to it so that you can better decide if it's working the way that you expected down the road. And then you can make a more clear sell decision if and when the time comes. I also talked about writing that reason down, know exactly why you bought it, when you bought it, what you thought was going to happen, what you were optimistic about, and then you can check in with yourself to see if it's going the way that you hoped. And then the last key takeaway, I mentioned this, I emphasized it in the episode, if you're going to take concentrated risks, make sure that you can dedicate the time to watching them and to changing things if needed. So if you're going to put some of those concentrated bets on in your portfolio, please, please, please make sure that you are ready to dedicate the time to watching it and to protecting yourself and doing risk management along the way. That's it. There were so many other key takeaways, but those were the, the big ones for me. I look so much forward to bringing you the next series very, very soon. For more from me, read my weekly column every Thursday on the SoFi blog or follow me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Liz Youngstrat. Tune in to the SoFi Daily podcast for five-minute daily episodes covering the top business, economic, and stock market news you need to start your day. The SoFi Daily pod is available on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to check out the SoFi Daily newsletter. You can sign up for the SoFi Daily to receive the latest financial news in your inbox every day. The important part is produced by SoFi in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Sarah Lee Kane, our producer, Brian Rivers, our production manager, and Carter Wogan, our editor and sound engineer. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance and past performance is no guarantee. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth, LLC, and is a registered investment advisor. 
Our active investing is via SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit sofi.com legal.